Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. All engine running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery, questions, research, technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is The Naked Scientist. Hello, welcome to the programme where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine. With me, Chris Smith, and with Eva Higginbotham. This week, home or away? Will we be able to get away for a holiday abroad this year? Also, sea snot paralyses the Turkish coastline and how just seeing another ill bird at a distance boosts a canary's immune system. Plus, we're going to look at the world of vaccine hesitancy. Why are some folks still unsure about getting a Covid vaccine and what can we do to reassure them? The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. It's the question on many people's minds. With the pandemic still ongoing, can I go away on holiday this year? UK Environment Minister George Eustace this week sounded a sombre note, telling Britons to holiday at home. The fear being that travel abroad could bring cases and variants of the virus back here. But is this a justifiable concern and what role, if any, does international travel play in the spread of coronavirus? By analysing the genetic sequences of virus samples collected from travellers in Europe last summer, Swiss researchers have shown that at least for one coronavirus variant, one called EU1, this is indeed the case. Eva spoke to the University of Bern's Emma Hodcroft. So last summer, we were looking at SARS-CoV-2 sequences in Switzerland, and we were particularly interested in seeing if we could tell something about how cases might have been spreading within Switzerland. But when I started to look into this more closely, I found that we had clusters of sequences that were closely related and not only were spreading in Switzerland, but also in Spain and in the UK. And as time went on, I started to see them popping up across Europe. When we first started looking into this, we were really worried that this might be the more transmissible variant that we were all very concerned about at the end of 2020. But actually, the more we looked at it, we realized that it seemed to be that travel was the key. And so what we showed in our paper is that this variant, which is called EU1, spread from Spain soon after borders opened last summer, after the lockdowns finished, and it was able to basically hop aboard the holidaymakers and travel across Europe. And it became the most prevalent variant circulating in Western Europe by the end of 2020 last year. How can you tell that this was spread by travel and not by it being more transmissible? What's the difference there? So we did do some lab experiments that allowed us to look at the mutations themselves and see if they had an effect. And we couldn't see that they seemed to make any difference in the lab dish. 
But perhaps even more importantly, what we see in the patterns last summer is that the variant really spread most when travel was the highest. And that instead of continuing to spread in the autumn and kind of taking over, for example, like the variant from the UK, the alpha variant did, it actually just started to plateau after that. And this suggests that its advantage was transient. It didn't last forever. And that matches really well with this idea that it took advantage of travel, but then after the summer holidays and the travel slowed down, it just couldn't really take off anymore. So how big a role would you say did travel play in the spread of this variant last year? So we really think that travel was the key here. We think this variant started to spread in Spain, possibly through some agricultural workers, and as people started to visit family and friends across Spain as the lockdown eased. And then we really start to see it being detected in other countries in Europe only after the borders reopened in Europe. And we can actually look at, for example, the number of people who traveled to Spain and when they were there. And we found that this correlates pretty well with how much EU1 ended up traveling back to that country. So that's a strong indicator that it really was travel that played the real role here. And do we know if this sort of travel-induced spread of this variant led to worse outcomes in the countries that it got into? So we don't think that EU1 necessarily, for example, led to the rise in cases that we saw in September. We think that this was probably more likely to be seasonal. However, it does matter what number of cases you start with. We've learned this in the epidemic. So when you're growing exponentially, you'll get up to higher numbers much faster if you start out with a higher number. And so we do think that the number of cases people brought back from EU1 might have meant that that country's case number started to go up perhaps earlier or went up a little bit faster. One way of thinking about it is thinking of a lot of sparks. They won't all start a fire, but the more sparks you import, the chances are that fire could take off a little bit sooner. So what might this mean for this year then? Should people not be going on holiday abroad? I think the, one of the things that EU1 can, can teach us is what mistakes we made last year. And then, of course, we can think about how we can not make those again. Last summer, we let people continue traveling to Spain even when case numbers were going up. We didn't have really any testing associated with travel. And unfortunately, it looks like the test and trace systems didn't catch those EU1 cases when they came back so that they were able to really get a good foothold in the countries where they spread. The situation is different this year. So for one, thankfully, the vaccine rollout is going well in most countries. And we've also seen that testing is playing a much bigger role in travel this year, with most countries requiring a negative test before you arrive. Those two things I do think will make a big difference in how likely it is that people will bring home SARS-CoV-2. But I think it's also really important for us to remember that those may not always be perfect, and we should always be keeping an eye out on what impact travel might be making on the number of introductions. And what's the take-home message? One of the biggest take-home messages for me about EU1 is that it's spread so effectively across Europe, despite the fact that it's not more transmissible. So we always want to keep in mind what human behaviors could be impacting the spread of a variant, and what might we be able to do to help cut those transmission chains. And one of those things might be not going on holiday abroad just yet. One of those things might be not going on holiday or at least waiting to go on holiday until you're fully vaccinated. And I think another important thing to keep in mind is to just be flexible this holiday season. Maybe think about going somewhere that's less crowded or spending a little more time on the beach and less time in crowded indoor spaces. 
and not being afraid to decide if you go somewhere and it seems a little bit more busy or people aren't adhering to guidelines as much as you'd like, you can always come back another time. It's all small things, but it can make a difference as far as transmission. Emma Hodcroft there, and her paper on that work has just been published in the journal Nature. Now, talking about travel and going to exotic places, the ocean is often something that attracts us. And we recently, appropriately enough, recognised World Ocean Day, which, according to the initiative's mission statement, is all about raising awareness of what's happening to the marine realm and rallying to restore and protect our blue planet. So, the appearance in the sea south of Istanbul, Turkey, of huge floating rafts of thick, viscid, sticky material that's being dubbed sea snot and which is made by explosively growing blooms of algae and it suffocates other sea life is a perfectly timed wake-up call. Charlotte Burke-Manis reports. Whether you're in the northern hemisphere and the sun is shining or you're here in the southern hemisphere and, well, it's a little more chilly, you decide to start planning your next summer holiday for when we're advised to travel once more. So you first find and blow the dust off the old atlas to glance at the world map. Then you remember it's the 21st century and you can actually look at photos online. You go to the search engine and start browsing. You want a side of the exotic while you're away. Some baklava with your sun baking, perhaps. So turkey it is. But instead of photos of glorious beaches and happy holiday makers, you see something very different staring back at you. A thick, jelly-like carpet of aptly named sea snot is spreading off the coastline of Turkey's Sea of Mamara. Dense mats of the slimy substance blankets the dark blue waters. Up close it's even less appealing. Creamy gelatinous goo. Stinky too. Now with your holiday plans in disarray let's find out what's going on. So it's not climate change per se it's more poor pollution and water management. That's David Klein from the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute. The inland sea's record-breaking marine bloom stretches from Istanbul, Europe's most populated city, to the tourist hotspot of the Aegean. The thick, slimy substance is not only an eyesore, but it can also devastate human health, as well as the environment and the economy of the region. And they basically cause dead zones where no animals are living because the oxygen levels get too low. The heavily industrialised shoreline of one of the planet's smallest seas is also a source of pollution. Agricultural runoff and ineffective waste disposal, coupled with increasing temperatures in calm waters, have led to high nutrient levels of nitrogen and phosphorus. This is the perfect environment for phytoplankton tiny floating sea plants or microscopic algae that create oxygen in the oceans. Normally that's a good thing. But with these excess levels of nutrients, they grow very quickly, and that's called a plankton bloom. And that also leads to these marine snot outbreaks, which are basically huge rafts of marine microorganisms. These phytoplankton that make the blooms, they can produce toxins that make us sick, types of phytoplankton that you don't really want. These blooms can also harbour bacteria and other toxic microorganisms that are harmful to human health. Now, this algae and bacteria is using up all the oxygen, and that causes everything else that needs this oxygen, like fish, crabs, and even corals, to suffocate and die. 
These animals then rot and sometimes sink, releasing mucus, causing more bacteria to grow, using more of the oxygen, and so the cycle continues. Yuck. This can quickly create these dead zones, damaging not only the ecosystem, but also the economy of the fisheries and others who are dependent on the ocean for their livelihoods. And tourism. And with the looming threat of climate change with increasing ocean temperatures, this could get worse as everything could be accelerated and amplified. Algae can breed faster. The blooms will increase in size, using the available oxygen even more quickly. So climate change and global warming will just make this whole phenomena even worse. And this isn't just impacting Turkey. Many other examples around the world. Basically, anywhere where you have a lot of farming, a lot of fertilizer use, it's happening in many places all around the world. Cleaning it up is not only messy, but it's also expensive. However, there is something we can do. As well as continuing to develop better ways to manage our waste and treat our water and deal with the agricultural runoff before it reaches the ocean. There's some creative solutions floating around. There are groups that are growing algae that local communities can sell. They grow them in rivers that feed into the ocean and basically act as a, a natural sponge for the nutrients, while at the same time growing algae that, that the local communities can sell for fertilizer or for biofuels. There's also hope for the current outbreak. So it's, it's not too late. There's lots of cases showing that if we do something to manage the nutrients, that the ecosystems can usually bounce back. And the silver lining in all this is that you can see the effects of reducing the nutrients in the water in a matter of weeks to months. Perhaps your Turkish holiday is just on hold for now. Charlotte Burke-Manis. She was talking to marine biologist and conservationist David Klein. Welcome to the Naked Gaming Podcast with me, Chris Barrow. And me, Lee Milner. Every month we look at the latest gaming news. The primary way for the farm pigs was really to nose the joystick up and down. We review the biggest releases. You can easily sit down, play it, switch off, a bit like Crash Bandicoot, but instead you're inside a horror movie. And because there's a simulator for almost anything, we play some of the strangest ones available. I'm kind of like dragging the pigs. The pigs are laying eggs and then coins are coming out of the eggs. The Naked Gaming Podcast from The Naked Scientists. Download it now wherever you get your podcasts. But meanwhile, coming up here on The Naked Scientist, your favourite science show of the week, how laughing gas, which is commonly used to relieve physical pain, has shown enormous success in a trial to help people who have severe refractory depression. Also, we'll hear how canaries amp up their immune system when they just take a look at another sick bird. But first, like me, are you a fan of high heels? I am joking, only at weekends. But if so, you might unfortunately be familiar with bunions. These are the painful bony bumps that can form on the sides of your big toes. This deformation, which is also known as hallux valgus, can be caused by wearing high heels or shoes that put pressure on the big toe. And it turns out that this condition wouldn't have been unfamiliar to the medieval residents of Cambridge who enjoyed wearing the incredibly fashionable, for the time, pointy-toed shoes. As Jenna Dittmar, who's now at the University of Aberdeen, analysed a lot of human remains from cemeteries around Cambridge and found this. Jenna, how do you tell from what comes out of a cemetery that people have bunions? So we analyzed the bones of the feet 
And from looking at these bones, we can see evidence of degenerative changes on the joints. Sometimes you see lipping or evidence of arthritis, and you can tell that during life, the toes would have been malaligned, so kind of stuffed together. And how do you link that deformity to what the people were wearing? Because they could have been wearing any old shoes, could they not? Absolutely. But during the 14th century, we see a new type of very pointed shoes that had very long, exaggerated tips that became quite fashionable. And the toes of these shoes were so long that they had to be stuffed with wool or moss so they would keep their shape. And when we were looking at trends through the 11th and 15th century, we see a very clear increase during the 14th and 15th centuries that coincides exactly with the time that these shoes became popular in England. Are those the same sorts of shoes that you see jesters wearing in a pack of cards? They're very similar, yes, only typically the types of shoes we would be talking about would be made of leather. And were they fashionable among the upper classes or was everyone walking around in shoes like that? They certainly were the most popular amongst wealthy individuals. But our study looked at individuals from four different archaeological sites, including a hospital specifically for the poor. And we found evidence of Hallux vulgus in this cemetery as well. So this suggests that this type of footwear was widely adopted by all members of Cambridge society, even though we did find more evidence of this type of condition in the clergy and in the wealthy patrons that were also buried in an Augustinian friary. Men and women, or were these shoes chiefly popular with just one sex? We did find evidence in both men and women, but we found higher percentage rates in the men that we looked at. And when we looked at the historical records, we find that the shoes tended to be more exaggerated and pointed in male footwear than they did in female footwear. And did anyone actually make the connection between wearing these daft sort of forms of footwear as we now view them and and having these negative consequences? That's an excellent question. There are some historical records that talk about foot pain, but it's really difficult to differentiate medical terms in the 13th and 14th century. So it could also mean that they were experiencing foot pain from something completely different. So it's really hard to tell if they made this connection during historic times. Actually, we found that the individuals in this study that were over the age of 45 were significantly more likely to have a fracture as the result of a fall than those that did not have hallux vulgus. So it suggests that people were paying quite a high price for fashionable footwear. So they were literally tripping over their own toes. Yes, exactly. Jenna, thanks very much. That's Jenna Dittmar. And the work that she was just telling us about there was just published in the International Journal of Paleopathology. Now, laughing gas is commonly being used as a recreational drug that gives you a sense of euphoria. But mixed with oxygen, it's one of the oldest drugs that we use in medicine. It's an anaesthetic and it relieves pain. Now, doctors from the University of Chicago have found a new and surprising use for it in managing mental health conditions. When they gave laughing gas, properly known as nitrous oxide or nitrous, to people with severe depression, they found some extraordinary results. Phil Sansom asked lead author on the study, Peter Nagale, whether or not the stuff really works. Yes, it does. And uh, remarkably so. Not every patient does respond to nitrous oxide. But uh, in most patients, it improves depressive symptoms really quickly. So within uh, several hours. And a single inhalation may help patients up to two weeks or longer. Wow. Is this just like one big breath in of nitrous oxide 
that you gave to a bunch of people or, or what is it? No. Um, and so this is not like the recreational party drug use. It is much more like patients would get it in dentistry or in the emergency room. You know, you're in a chair or, you know, hospital bed and inhale this for about an hour through the face mask. And of course, we always combine nitrous oxide with oxygen, and it could be either 50-50 or what we showed in the study, a lower concentration of 25% nitrous and the rest oxygen it has similar efficacy. Who were you giving this to? And, and out of those people, how many did it help? These patients had been suffering from depression for close to 20 years and had run out of treatment options. And, you know, four out of five patients had an improvement in their depressive symptoms. You know, I can see clearer now that gray has gone out of my life. I'm more energized. I'm happier. They may describe this within hours after treatment. That's remarkable, isn't it? I mean, these people had untreatable previously depression. 80% of them you helped get better for weeks. Yes. So for some patients, you know, the improvement in their depression lasted much longer. And some patients, you know, it started to come back after a week. It will be interesting to tailor the treatment to the individual patient to see, you know, how often would you need to repeat the treatment. But I agree with you. It is quite remarkable that the mass majority of patients really did see a treatment effect. Yes, I agree. How can you be sure that it's not some sort of placebo effect happening? Placebo effects are very common in studies or clinical trials in patients with mood disorders like depression, but it has become very apparent that the drug effect is much stronger than a simple placebo effect. So is it just that people were blissed out by getting this drug or was something deeper happening? When you look at most patients, the response to inhaling nitrous oxide is that basically they fall asleep. But asking what's going on in the brain is actually super important and super interesting. The way we think nitrous oxide works is similar to a drug called ketamine. And the discovery that ketamine has effects as an antidepressant has been considered one of the biggest breakthrough findings in depression research in the last you know, 50 years. There is a receptor system in the human brain that's called NMDA receptors that must play a very important part. Now, how this interacts is really, I think, one of the hottest areas right now in neuroscience. Something must happen in the brain that it's like flipping a switch that will change how the brain operates, right? And this may last, you know, as I said, for some patients for several weeks. And by that time, of course, nitrous oxide is long gone. Extraordinary finding, isn't it? One of those unusual things. We still don't know how many of these general anaesthetic agents like nitrous oxide actually work. So there's still some work to do, but a stunning finding. Peter Nagalay there. And you can find the study published, if you want to read about that, in the journal Science Translational Medicine. Now, seeing sick people can make you feel unwell yourself sometimes, but it might also, scientists are showing, augment your own immune system to better defend you should they come a bit too close. That's certainly the case for canaries, at least, as Sally LePage has been hearing from the University of Connecticut's Ashley Love. 
For our experiment, we had birds that were sick, so they are infected with this bacterium. And then we had healthy individuals on the other side of a divider. And then across from those two groups, we had birds that were either just staring at healthy neighbors or birds that were staring at sick neighbors so they could see sort of a visual cue of disease. What does a sick bird look like? So they're a little puffy. They look tired. They don't want to move. Sometimes they just hang out by the food bowl, which I also do when I'm sick. I just sit around with snacks. (laughs) So you've got these healthy canaries that are looking at either sick or healthy birds opposite them in the room. What did you test? We looked at um, a few different components of innate immunity, which is just a non-specific component of your immune system. We found an increase in a specific cell type called a heterophil, which is similar to neutrophils that humans have. And this cell is really important in early inflammation responses. So it's sort of like your first line of defense that goes out to the site of infection. And then the one other thing we looked at was called complement activity. And so these are proteins that are circulating in your blood. And this is uh, really important for lysing open or um, breaking open foreign cells like bacteria. So yeah, we found that seeing sick individuals was changing the immune system. And could these changes make it harder for those birds to get infected? So we um, haven't tested to confirm whether or not this increased immunity actually benefits the birds, but that's something we're working on right now. It's astonishing to think that what the birds can see is linked up to such a different part of the body like the immune system. While Ashley's team haven't yet pinned down how that link is happening, it's possible that seeing sick birds is stressful, which triggers stress hormones that amps up the immune system. Just like humans watching a horror movie triggers an adrenaline response, which amps up our heart rate. So that might be how the birds are responding to sick individuals, but why are they responding? That's a great question. So we don't know for sure. We think it could be that avoiding individuals obviously can help prevent you from becoming infected. But there's also cost associated with that. So birds aren't getting to engage in social interactions. They might miss out on foraging opportunities. So if there is this little immune boost um, that they're getting from seeing sick individuals, it might potentially protect them and allow them to still interact with other individuals. And how strong is this effect? The response is sort of incredible just because it's happening at all. I don't think it's as strong as, say, you know, vaccine or I think, you know, taking preemptive medicines to protect yourself. But I think it's sort of a short term boost that probably helps a wild organism. Um, I don't know about humans could give a short burst of immune uh, benefits to humans as well, but not as strong as probably some of the medicines and preemptive medicines we give. What made you even think of looking at how social interactions can affect the immune system? I've been studying wildlife diseases for a while, and I came across this paper that was a study in humans where they showed human participants images of sick people, so coughing and sneezing, people with rashes. And um, what they found was that those uh, participants that were seeing images of sick people had a boost in immune function. Um, So I thought that was super fascinating and was really curious if that was going on in other organisms as well. And of all the organisms you could have picked, why canaries? (laughs) Well, I was currently working with canaries at the time, and since I was already working with a disease system that caused these obvious visual signs or symptoms of disease, we thought it would be the perfect system to test these questions in. And how many birds do you have in at once? At the time of this experiment, we had a little over 40 birds. 
Um, but now we, well, since we've been studying reproductive effects in mothers, we've been breeding birds. So we're, I think we're over a hundred birds now, which is a lot of canaries. <laughs> a swarm of canaries. Oh, that must be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. The noise that they make carries down the hallway. So I think the other, other labs that work in our building might be a little bit frustrated with us. What a glorious sound to hear throughout the lab. And that was Ashley Love. And that study she was describing was published in the journal Biology Letters. And if you'd like to find out more about the news stories we've discussed, the links to each of the reference papers are on our website, www.nakedscientist.com, along with the transcripts of each interview for every Naked Scientist show. Much has changed for business owners, managers and staff recently. But with over 30 years' experience in telecommunications, award-winning independent company Spitfire have the expertise to make sure you stay ahead and can keep on innovating. Whether it's connectivity, MPLS networks, firewalls, or phone systems, Spitfire can help. To find out more, go to spitfire.co.uk. That's spitfire.co.uk. Spitfire, telecoms and IP engineering solutions for business since 1988. Music in the program is sponsored by Epidemic Sound, perfect music for audio and video productions. For the rest of the program this week, we're going to talk about the subject of vaccine hesitancy. Why it is that some people are doubtful about coming forward for a COVID-19 jab. Indeed, despite two billion doses and climbing of COVID vaccines being administered worldwide, some people are still nervous about getting it. Here at The Naked Scientists, we've heard from a number of listeners who are all for vaccination, while other family members, despite being eligible, have decided not to have their COVID jab. In some cases, it's causing friction and people are falling out over the issue. As one family told us... One of my sons and his... well, she was his fiancé, she's now his wife. They decided between them that they were not going to take up the offer of the COVID vaccine and they sent this long list of reasons with all the details of of why and and they included all sorts of things. Now those words were spoken by an actor but we will hear more from that family story later in the programme. Now this week's show is not about blaming people or finger pointing. Everyone has of course a right to know what's being put into their bodies and why. And if some people are sceptical there must be a reason for that and it needs to be addressed almost certainly with good quality communication, conversation and education. So let's find out why it's happening, what the scale of the problem is and what sorts of reasons are on lists like the one that we just heard mentioned there. Well, with us is Mohamed Rezai, who's a researcher in primary care at St George's Hospital in London. He's been looking into this. Mohamed, what's on that sort of list? The most common reasons um, people give and surveys and studies have shown is concerns about long-term effects, side effects and unknown future effects on health, concerns about the speed of development of COVID-19 vaccines and concerns about vaccines' incompatibility with religious beliefs. There are also concerns about practical issues such as inconvenient vaccine delivery time and location, particular amongst women, there are apprehensions surrounding fertility, pregnancy and breastfeeding. And of course, we have heard quite a lot around the spread of misinformation. And some people do believe in conspiracy theories such as COVID-19 not being real or that vaccines modify DNA. Also, in some ethnic minorities, such as some black ethnicities, we see a lack of trust in 
the pharmaceutical industry and government, public health bodies, and just generally a low confidence in vaccines and their importance and safety and efficacy. So these are some of the concerns we are seeing consistently in published surveys and research. Most of these, though, Mohammed, sound like a communication deficit, as in that people are saying those things and making to them quite rational decisions and quite sensible decisions based on a lack of information or a lack of the right sort of information or access to that information. Absolutely. I mean, recognising barriers to uptake, such as the ones I mentioned, it's just really crucial because it will help inform interventions to address them. And because the key with vaccine hesitancy is to build confidence in vaccines and particularly listening to people's concerns, being respectful of different religious or cultural beliefs and being aware of some justifiable, understandable historical mistrust among some ethnic minority communities about vaccines. And these are really crucial in vaccine communication. Have those stumbling blocks always been there? with those groups you just mentioned. And it's just only when we come to try and vaccinate people en masse against something like coronavirus that we then disclose them. Or is this a new thing for coronavirus? It has been there for a very long time. We know that the key drivers of vaccine hesitancy and in a way causes of vaccine hesitancy are actually rooted in lower socioeconomic groups, around structural upstream factors like structural racism, access barriers. And we know that lack of trust in government, for example, fear of government is a very, very pertinent, potent symbol of a structural racism. Not just a problem for the UK, though, is it? Because if you look at what the World Health Organization is saying, they are putting vaccine hesitancy and anti-vax on their list of the top 10 of what they regard as global health threats going forward. Absolutely. I mean, several international surveys have shown that about 40 to 50 percent of world population are vaccine hesitant. So this the same reasons don't apply to every country. What we see in other countries is, again, around poverty, socioeconomic stasis and mainly access barriers and also to do with misinformation again. And to give people some context, what do we think the impact of the present status quo is? What sort of a cost is that having in terms of our ability to control and protect potentially rein in coronavirus going forward? I think we have said that if you look across the population in the UK, for example, vaccine hesitancy is on the decline at the moment is 6%. But if you look at the granular data, we see a lot of vaccine variations across ethnic groups. We see some variation along, along the age groups. So these are really important because it will lead to local outbreaks and local outbreaks are not good because it drives infection, the spread of infection, and that could cause emergence of new variants, as well as putting the rest of the population at risk because of these pockets of unvaccinated people. And also, we need to bear in mind that vaccine incidence is really high amongst ethnic minorities, and it will exacerbate pre-existing health inequalities and inequities in health. So these are really important. We need to address vaccine hesitancy by engaging at the population level and targeting those groups. Mohammed, thank you very much indeed. That's Mohammed Razai, who is a researcher in primary care at St George's Hospital in London. 
Now, although the coronavirus pandemic is new, as Mohammed alluded to, vaccine hesitancy is not. The phenomenon has actually been around for as long as we've had vaccines, as I heard recently from University of Oxford's Paula Larson. So I think one of the most really fascinating parts about studying the history of vaccination resistance is the way in which the same arguments are used over and over again for centuries. You have individuals in the mid-1800s who are saying that, first of all, that the disease itself was not such a problem. They would minimize the threat of disease quite significantly and say, smallpox epidemic, maybe it wasn't happening. Maybe it wasn't as bad as it was reported. And we see those same arguments today with COVID. Um, You also have people say that the vaccine itself is what's making people sick. They used to say in the past that vaccination would give you tuberculosis, um, syphilis, blood poisoning was quite often thrown around. And over the next hundred years, you saw consistent resistance throughout the UK, America, and Canada. Those resistance movements would repeat those exact same arguments again. It's just that maybe in the 1800s, they'd say blood poisoning, but by 1920, they would say cancer. And by 1976, you see autism thrown in there. And is it the same groups historically who tend to be nervous about vaccines that are being affected by this rhetoric? When it comes to anti-vaccination movements in the past, you do see the same type of people who lead them. They often are led by people who are wealthy, middle class and white, usually individuals who have something to gain from a movement financially as well as reputationally. In, for instance, 1885, there was a really big anti-vaccination movement in Canada, and that was led by Dr. Alexander Ross, who was a homeopath, but also a medical physician. And he really wanted to fight against the vaccinators because he wanted to really change his reputation. He viewed himself as like a white knight crusader, and he had a stake in it personally. The father of naturopathy, for instance, who, which really took off in 19th century North America, Benedict Lust, he had a lot to gain professionally from it because uh, his practice of naturopathy was being pushed out and regulated from the profession of medicine. And so there was reasons why naturopaths and homopaths wanted to have anti-vaccination movements take place because it gave them more prominence in the medical field at a time when they were being pushed out of it, when they were being called cranks and quacks and not being given license to practice their their trade. So there was lots of financial and lots of personal reasons that people could lead these movements, but they're almost exclusively always movements that begin and are led by individuals that are white, upper middle class likely, and usually are trying to gain something from them. And what about the people who are sort of vulnerable to these sorts of messages, do they tend to be the same sort of people in terms of demographics over the course of history? That is, I think, the most complex part of this. The people who listen or who buy into anti-vaccination arguments are a diverse group and they, they usually pick up on parts of different arguments and only certain aspects of it. There's been many individuals who would, for instance, be against vaccination in the past because it was compulsory, not because they're actually against the practice itself, but they just didn't want it to be compulsory. There was people who would be against vaccination because they believed it was a conspiracy of some sort. That was another argument that was repeated since the mid-1800s over and over again. And there'll be some people who believe that vaccines themselves are dangerous. And some individuals too will just believe that perhaps they're, they're nervous or uncomfortable one vaccine. For instance, the smallpox vaccine was compulsory for a long time and had many different adverse reactions associated with it. So there's a reason why we discontinued using it in 1971. 
So there could be a fear of just one vaccine, which kind of bleeds over into other vaccinations. In the 1980s, we saw a fear of just the pertussis vaccine come forward, the pertussis component for whooping cough, and there was suspicion that it could be linked to adverse reactions that could cause brain damage. And that led to a large anti-vax movement um, led by parents of children who they had perceived had been vaccine injured. So people who follow or who listen to the anti-vax rhetoric, they often pick and parcel the ones that, that are actually informing their own identity and their own experiences. And that can change depending on which group or community they belong to. And is there anything we can learn from history, how people previously managed to encourage people to take different vaccines? Is there anything we can learn from that in how we operate now to try to encourage people to take the COVID-19 vaccine? So I think the most telling part of history have been the successes. And the successes come forward when communities are directly included in decisions about policy. There's always a question about compulsion, and that's been, of course, coming up over and over again as well. Compulsory policies have always been the worst for vaccine initiative and uptake and trust. Every time a compulsory policy comes forward, it's usually led to a large resistance movement and an expansion of hesitancy almost exclusively every single time. So compulsion is usually not the way the best way that it's historically always worked is working with community members, community leaders in different communities. So usually religious leaders or physicians of color, if you're working with a community of color and working with people they trust who will listen to their concerns and would not be coming from the establishment that has historically been an oppressing force for them. So working directly with communities is really key and important in these and listening to those individual concerns for hesitancy itself. Because anti-vaccination movements and anti-vaccination narratives are only a small piece of why people actually are hesitant historically. That's the loudest piece we hear, and they're very visible. But there's always a little number of personal individual reasons as well. And when that personal conversation happens is when hesitancy itself can really be addressed. Paula Larson from the University of Oxford there, reminding us how it's important sometimes to look to the past to figure out what we can do now. This week, we're looking at vaccine hesitancy. On the way, if decisions over whether to get vaccinated are causing friction in your family, the approach that London-based GP Fazana Hussain has been taking with her community might prove helpful. She joins us shortly. But first, although vaccine hesitancy has been around in various forms for centuries, as we've just heard, modern technologies like smartphones and social media that allow uncurated communications have moved the goalposts on a massive scale, allowing the mass proliferation of what is sometimes highly misleading information. Yota Mafia is from the University of Buffalo, where he studies how these platforms can affect public opinion and trust in science and medicine. So, Yotam, what is the current situation that we're in? Do people generally trust scientists? On average, both in the United Kingdom and in the US, trust in science remains actually high relatively to other institutions. In fact, in the United Kingdom, surveys indicated that there is some increase in trust in science during COVID. However, and it's important, averages can be misleading. Part of the reason why we don't see changes in trust of science is a movement towards political polarization in trust. So here in the United States, for example, we see an increase in trust among Democrats, but also a worrisome decrease in trust among Republicans. 
that polarization, we might pay a heavy price for it in the future when we need to cope with other challenges such as global warming and so on. So even if on average trust in science remains relatively high, I believe our focus should be directed to subpopulations, political or otherwise, where misinformation and distrust is actually on the rise. And on that note, what can we actually do to try and increase public trust? So my own research suggests that to increase trust in science, we need to educate the public. But by educating, we do not mean teaching people scientific facts. For example, that the world is warming up. Those were found consistently in recent years to be ineffective. Instead, what we found is that explaining to people how science works, what is the nature and values of science, could increase trust in science and allow people to better understand why they should trust science and why science is a reliable way of learning about the world. I see. So it's not so much about learning this fact, it's about learning how that fact was discovered, how we decided as a community of scientists that this is the truth. You've done some research into the role of the media in particular in creating or damaging public trust in science. What have you found is helpful in that scenario for the media to do? So in my work with Kathleen Hall-Jameson, we found that one problem with how the media discuss science is that they tend to focus too much on individual achievements and failures. So most times media coverage of science focuses on the hero scientist who made a breakthrough or the villain scientist who committed a fraud. Now, we believe that a more accurate depiction of science should focus on the scientific community and its values, the consistent skeptic search for the truth and the ability of science as a community project to self-correct itself and identify mistakes when they are made. A good example for this is the Johnson & Johnson vaccine that was put on a hold in the United States after some reports of blood clots among among females. This could be depicted by the media as a crisis, as as a sign that science doesn't work, but we believe that it's a sign that science is actually healthy, that science is doing what it needs to be doing. Even after you approve something, you keep testing it, you keep being skeptic about it. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine was put on a hold was retested, was found to be safe, and then was redeployed. And the thing underlying a lot of this is social media. Lots of people, I mean, everyone's on something, Twitter, Facebook, whatever it is. Why does misinformation about things like vaccines spread so well on social media? Right. So it's easy and tempting to blame us, to blame the people for spreading misinformation. But in my view, the biggest problem with social media is not the people who use it, but the algorithms working behind the scenes. What we call the news feed in Twitter or Facebook is actually programmed to keep users engaged for as long as possible in order to increase profits by those private companies. So basically, social media show us what we want to see. It shows us what they believe is engaging content that's going to keep us engaged for as long as possible. That content is often misleading. That's because the truth is often much more boring than conspiracy theories. And so social media algorithms are um, pushing misinformation to the top of our feeds to keep us engaged to increase profits. Now, because of those algorithms, in part, those who distrust science manage to remain a very, very loud minority that can influence others online as well. 
So it seems like a lot of social media is kind of almost bound to be perpetuating this negative stuff, this misinformation. Is there any way that we can harness the power of social media, though, to spread helpful stories and narratives and facts about science and about the vaccines? So health organizations and science communicators do their best to harness social media for the benefit of society. But in my opinion, they often do so without following the science of science communication. Again, as I said earlier, just providing facts doesn't work. So science communicators should get better at creating engaging content that matters, content that takes into consideration the values and characteristics of the audience and relies on engaging um, messages in order to make the point about, for example, the safety of vaccines. So social media do offer a promise for science communication, but it will require us to get better at working in this platform. So we'd better get to work. Thanks very much, Yotam Ophir from the University of Buffalo. Of course, you won't catch any misinformation on The Naked Scientist with Savid. You can get us at Naked Scientist. Find us on Facebook too. Now, finally, from mass communications to personal ones, what can you do if you have a loved one who doesn't want to get the COVID vaccine or perhaps any vaccine? Well, Fazana Hussain is a GP in London, and in February she made it her, miss- her mission to personally call up as many eligible patients as she could who hadn't yet signed up to get their COVID vaccines, and she talked them through it. Fazana What motivated you to do this? Was this a paucity of uptake in your area? Yes, it was, Chris. When the vaccine programme rolled out, I found that within about two, three weeks, I could see that around the country there was great uptake. But amongst my patients, only 50% of my over 65s, which was the open cohort at that time, were attending. And it was fascinating for me because I run quite a small practice. I've been there 18 years. I know my patients quite well. And I could see that the 50% that weren't attending, Chris, were mainly from various BAME communities and the 50% that did attend were all Caucasian. And I really found this fascinating because Newman had the highest COVID death rates in the country Mm. in the first wave. So I took it upon myself to ring my patients, having been very fortunate, having that relationship with many of my elderly patients as well, to try and find out what it was, what was causing the lack of wanting to go. And what did they say? In Newham, we're very diverse ethnically, very rich, little world, 74% BAME. If I was to put it into three categories, which I know is huge generalisation, my South Asian patients, particularly my Pakistanis and Bangladeshis, who have been shown to have lower uptake than the Indians, were mainly concerned, as Mohammed said, about animal products. Is it safe? Is it halal Islamically? Is it okay? I'm a practising Hindu. I don't want any animal products in my body. My black Africans and Caribbeans, it was exactly as Paula was talking about. It was a general mistrust of the state. You know, um, lots of examples of, well, if you're black, then you're more likely to be diagnosed with schizophrenia. Why should we have any faith in this vaccine now when black people are generally more victimised? So it's a fascinating piece of work for me. It, It does sound like it comes down to what we were hearing just previously with Mohammed about education and information. There's also a study out, it's in yesterday's Telegraph, this was reported, a study out from King's College and University of Bristol, 5,000 people quizzed. They showed that actually the number of people who were vaccine hesitant has dramatically changed in a year. 
Absolutely, Chris. We've seen a five-fold increase in the Bangladeshi community nationally taking up their vaccines, a three-fold increase in the Pakistani community. The key to this for me as a GP, I'm a family doctor. I've been a GP for 20 years and I very much consider myself a family doctor. We talk a lot about education. Education works both ways. It's not just about us telling our patients what to do, but the key for me has been to listen to what the concerns are because every single family and every single individual will have a unique concern and that's what we need to address with facts asking people to give us their feedback on what they've heard well speaking of listening let's have a listen to the family that we spoke of at the beginning of the program they've tried to talk to their son about the vaccine this is what they said we just sent him the details and said look you're wrong and here are the reasons why and that's it I know we've addressed everything, all the facts, all the supposed facts that he sent us. We've addressed them and we've tried to explain to them, you know, why they're wrong. What would be your approach under those circumstances for Zana? So I'd really be going with what is it? Because I found that the common theme for whatever the reason people are giving is fear whether it's fear of lack of fertility, fear of the state, fear of putting something in that doesn't comply with my religion. That's the key in that I would take through listening. What's his fear? What about friends and family, Fazana? Because, you know, who we turn to when we want advice, it isn't necessarily picking up the phone and talking to your GP. The first people we will almost certainly speak to, as in the family we've been hearing these clips from, are other family members. So is part and parcel of solving this problem about reaching not just one individual, but reaching the whole network? Yeah, definitely, Chris. I I think you've hit the nail on the head. And certainly uh, where I am, we see a lot of intergenerational families as well. And I always go back to that old thing. If if your mum tells you to put your coat on, you generally put your coat on. So one of the things that I've found is really useful is actually speaking to some of the women and particularly the women who are perhaps mothers as well as looking after their mother-in-laws and their own parents. Because if they are very pro-vaccine, they can actually influence an awful lot of people in their household from their younger ones to their husbands to their relatives. It's a bit like sparks coming down and starting lots of little fires isn't it? So you have started the ball rolling by getting to a few people there were obviously some influences in there that then helped to grab other people along the way. Yeah, and I think my biggest success was one of my ladies who I've known very, very well over 15 years, I've known her in her 80s, an African lady. And she said to me, oh, but doctor, I'm worried about the long term side effects. And I know her really well. And I so I could be a bit cheeky. And I said, listen, if you grow a second head because of your vaccine when you're 100, I'll come and cut it off myself. And she was laughing. And I said, you know, my mum's passed away. My mum died when I was 19. I said, but my mum would have been exactly your your age. She's in her early 80s. And I said, if my mum was here, I would really want her to have the vaccine to protect her. And I want you to have it. Her son rang our reception three days later and said, can you just thank Dr. Hussain? Because I wanted my mum to have it as well. And she said, but what Dr. Hussain said about her mum, she went and had it. A bit of a worry when your GP says, I'll chop your second head off. But um, it can be really hard on families. Let's have a listen to a little bit more of what they told us. I mean, we just don't talk about it. Um, That's all. We talk about other things, but we won't get into that issue because, you know, we've learned that every time we've tried, it just doesn't work. And his parting argument is always, I want to protect you. I want what's best for you um, because you're my parents and 
obviously I love you and I, I want to make sure that you're safe. Have you got any advice for people or families that find themselves in this position where it's almost become an unmentionable subject, like not bringing up politics at a dinner party? Yeah, it was quite sad to hear, wasn't it, that they don't talk about it. And actually, heart-wrenching to hear that actually he just wanted to protect his parents and this is how he knew best how. So I think in a situation like this, if we can encourage support. So does that family know anybody else in their wider family friend circle that has perhaps had the vaccine? In Newham, we've got um, what we call COVID champions. So our council, our public health team have trained up over 100 people who are from the community who have found out about the COVID vaccine and COVID effects. And they help other members of the community and come into practices as well with us. Because Sometimes it's really powerful to just have somebody else when you're sort of you've reached that log ahead yourself with your family to have somebody else coming in. Well, Fazana, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for sharing your experience. Fazana Hussain there, GP in uh, Newham in London. Thank you so much to all of our other guests this week. Hopefully that's given you some tips for talking with family members or loved ones who might be concerned about the vaccines. And bear in mind that although we've been highlighting the issue this week, the numbers of vaccine uptake in many, many countries is still very good. And in fact, I'm going to get mine next week. I can't wait. Good luck with that. Hope you don't grow two heads. You'll have to go and see Fazana Hussain and get it chopped off. (laughs) Well, to finish this week, a complete change of tone and direction. We're diving into the ocean because, uh, well, let's join Phil Sansom, who's been thinking deeply, or should we say sinking deeply, about this inquiry from listener Richard. Will a can of soda dropped in the ocean sink until it implodes? Or will it float once the density reaches equilibrium? There's only one way to find out what happens to a can in the ocean, an experiment. I don't have an ocean, but I do have a really big pot I can fill up. Okay, that's three litres, so if I add six tablespoons of salt, I think that should roughly make seawater. Let's give it a stir. Mmm, salty. Okay, and I've got a can of Coke. Let's see what happens. Ah, it floats. Interesting. Yeah, right there on the surface. Richard... The cans failed your question at the first hurdle. It would have to be denser than the water to sink before we could learn whether it would implode or hover at a fixed depth. But that's not the end of it, according to Mia Fulks from the Cambridge Science Centre. This is a really interesting and deceptively complex question and depends on which country you're in. In the UK, fizzy drinks contain less sugar, so the can will always have a lower density than water and float. Other countries will add more sugar so their cans of soda will sink. The difference even extends to diet versus regular drinks. Regular Coke will sink, while Diet Coke will float. So, let's take the sugariest of US fizzy drinks as our example, which is going to have a density of a little over a gram per milliliter. Ocean water is at that density at about 5,000 metres below the surface. If our can sank to 5,000 metres, it would subsurface float because of the equal densities. But it's unlikely the can would get that deep. At 5,000 metres, the water pressure would be around 500,000 kilopascals. That's 5,000 times the pressure of the Earth's atmosphere. So, if a can of soda sank in the ocean, it would be crushed before it started floating. 
On the forum, user Halk has speculated how this might happen. The can is a nice symmetric shape, so it's going to keep its shape for a while, but eventually the top of the can will begin to bulge inward. Given enough pressure, it will probably dent somewhere, allowing the two pressures to equalize. It won't ever completely implode. The liquid in the can isn't compressible enough. Interestingly enough, the average depth of the ocean is 3,700 meters. So, in many places, the can couldn't possibly get deep enough to float, even if it could survive the trip down. Thanks very much to Mia Folks for that answer. For now, see you later, alligator, because next time we're answering this question from one of our younger listeners, Johan. I'm Johan from California, and why crocodile skin are so bumpy and not smooth? Well, that's not too much of a rough question for you. Why don't you send us your thoughts to chris at thenakedscientist.com. Thanks to Eva who put the programme together and be sure to tune in at the same time next week to get your teeth into a programme all about the science of sharks. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. Thanks for listening and until next time from all of us at The Naked Scientist, goodbye. <laughs>